0: the number one thing that is going to heal trauma is felt safety through relationships. And so when you have caregivers who are committed to that sense of permanency, regardless of what you do or what you say, or, you know, and can understand that trauma isn't personal, that trauma is trauma and continue to just kind of get on your level and meet you where you're at. That's when you're going to see like really strong and solid outcomes.
1: Hey there, I'm Crystal Blue and welcome to Flourishing in Color, a place for conversations between ordinary ladies with the hope that our perspectives allow you to gather meaningful insights that expand your worldview. Some of our experiences may be the same, others may be different, but when we listen, lean in and learn, we will create a flourishing world in color. Hey guys, welcome to part three of our three-part series on adoption. I'm so excited to have you here with us as we answer your questions, or rather while I read your questions and Amy answers them. I have to tell you guys that it's brought me so much joy creating this series, and that joy has only been amplified through all of your feedback. Knowing we have so many of you here listening with us and hearing from so many of you and your thoughts have really meant a lot. Thank you to everyone who is joining us for this series, everyone who's shared the podcast with friends and family, and everyone who is cheering us on along the way. As someone who is at the very beginning of her adoption journey, I'm so incredibly grateful for everything I've learned from Amy and from the series. And I don't just mean the things I've learned as they pertain to adopting myself, but also the things I've learned as they pertain to adoption in general. So I'm a big TV watcher, and right now two of the shows I'm watching have been talking about adoption. One is doing a really great job, and I feel like the other one is somewhat problematic and not doing such a hot job on it. I don't know if any of you guys love This Is Us, but I totally do. I'm here for all the drama, emotion, and tears that come with every episode, and I'm especially grateful for the approach they're currently taking when it comes to Randall's journey with his own adoption. I can't say that it's an infallible picture of what it means to be an adoptee, but I do think they're making really positive, active steps towards bringing to light the complex grief and emotions that surround your experience as an adoptee, especially a transracial adoptee. I am so glad that these conversations with Amy have equipped me to really analyze the way adoption is being portrayed and to be more critical of the narratives I'm internalizing. For instance, one of the more problematic portrayals of adoption I've been seeing lately is on A Million Little Things. I'm not going to say that everything is bad, but there have definitely been things that have been said by characters that I really had to question. And while I don't think that any of the writers were malicious when writing these storylines, it kind of sheds light on the bigger issue. The issue of us just accepting problematic narratives and ideologies without really questioning them, which leads me to the heart of this podcast. My heart is to equip all of us to question things that we never questioned, to force us to face problematic systems that we just accepted or have been a part of without realizing how harmful they could be. So my hope is that as you listen through this series on adoption, you'll be able to really question the systems, stories, and conversations around you with refreshed perspective and deeper wisdom. Whether it's regarding your own experience with adopting and adoption, or whether it's just in your experience as a human being, I hope you'll be able to challenge the narratives you're facing with family, friends, family friends, and even TV and movies, and that you'll feel empowered to use your voice to create a flourishing world where adoptees can heal and bloom. Now, before we jump into this Q&A episode, I wanted to let you all know about the next series I'll be doing on the podcast. Starting in two weeks, I'll be launching a series all about women of color and business. I will have a few different entrepreneurs and business owners, and we'll be talking about what it means to be a woman in business, what it means to infuse your identity into your business, and what led us to taking the big step of starting our own businesses. I hope you'll join me for that. And if you know somebody who should be a podcast guest for that series, please reach out to me on Instagram. Okay, now it's time for us to answer some questions and learn some more from the wonderful Amy Wilkerson. Hey guys, we are back for part three of our adoption series and we're answering all your questions today. Amy, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. I'm excited. I'm excited for some of these questions. Um, We did get questions. I want to be like straight up. We got questions that we've already addressed in past episodes. So if you submitted those questions and you don't hear yours here, it's probably because we already answered it. But as we jump in again, I think Amy probably says this and I do as well, that all of our answers are coming from our own experiences and we're not speaking for any wide groups of people, right? Mm-hmm. So, the first question we got was How do you responsibly fund an adoption as
0: an adoptive parent? Ooh, uh, <laughs> I don't know, to be truthfully and honest. I don't know if there is an ethical and responsible way to fund an adoption. So, a couple of reasons why. I think one of the biggest reasons is by the time that you're usually in the stages of fundraising for an adoption, your home study is usually complete. And in order to have a home study be complete and the stamp of approval to adopt, there's a huge financial component that goes into that. And so by standards of what, you know, you would need in order for an adoption um, to take place, that an agency um, would pretty much be able to give you the stamp of approval like you already meet the funds or have the funds to Go forward with that adoption. And so that's a piece of it. And I think also when we're fundraising or inevitably sharing adoptee stories without adoptee consent, a lot of personal information about the child, the circumstances. And I don't think that that is fair to kids um, having their grief and loss shared like that. I think it's just kind of exploitive. And um, I think that, I don't know, I just Adopting is as a privilege, and children aren't to be commodified to fill voids of grief and loss, or to fill like a to reach a goal. So for me, I, I don't think that there is a responsible or an ethical way that you can fund adoptions. I really don't. That's
1: super interesting because I think so many of us have heard of people like fundraising on like GoFundMe or doing fundraisers through other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is like a really interesting perspective that's definitely been in, like hard for me, I guess, like a hard pill to swallow because I do have a lot of people in my life who would totally help. But realizing that if I'm going to go forward with an adoption, I need to be able to pay for that ourselves, right? Because there's not just the initial adoption costs, but like we talked about, there's costs for um therapy over the lifespan mm-hmm. of the child, over um your family therapy, um, just a bunch of different things that you want to not be stretched thin, and So you shouldn't be entering adoption if you can't financially afford it already. Right. right?
0: Yeah. And, and you wouldn't necessarily, I mean, you wouldn't, I don't hear people having fundraisers for their biological children. And so it's kind of the same idea. Yeah. Like you said, there are extra things because it's a different experience than raising biological children. But at the end of the day, then it goes back to that initial, like, what are your motives behind adopting? Um, Because why wouldn't that money be spent towards keeping children with their families? If, If so many international situations, for example, that's all it would take is just extra support for biofam to be able to sustain so many times children have to be placed due to poverty and economic reasons. And so then it comes back down to, is this really about, the best interest of the child? Or is this about filling a void or a goal in your life? So follow up question
1: for myself to sure. that. What do you think about doing like adoptive showers the same way we do baby showers where people bring like things, um, give gifts on behalf of the baby, right? Uh, doing adoptive showers where people give gifts. If, um, the adoptee is like a toddler or even like grade school, um, gifts for that adoptee. How do we feel? About yeah. That?
0: So I think that that's so different, right? Like in the sense of, I mean, that's something that is just an instinctual, like welcoming. It's, it's like, a, a cultural event that we do to welcome a child. Fundraising is different because you don't go into a shower having to f- contribute financially. You can contribute in a way of like, sharing a song or there's there's ways or sharing like a book that's really important it doesn't have to be this like huge expense but when you're looking at communities that adopt they tend to be upper middle to upper middle class white communities and so fundraising in those communities just continues to perpetuate um, white privilege and saviorism and it's just it's not some it's just it's a very it's coming at it very different than um what a baby shower is or what a welcome sh- welcome to the family shower is or however you would word it in the in the case of adoption.
1: Next question. How important do you think it is for international adoptees to be connected to their culture, language, and what steps would you recommend for their families? Yeah, so
0: I definitely think so it's it's funny my husband and I were just talking about this today. So my husband's biracial. He's not a transracial adoptee, but he is biracial and so we have like a similar experience in the fact that we always feel like we've been lost between two worlds. So I was raised by a white family. I don't feel like I've been ever fully accepted into the white community as a BIPOC person, which makes sense. And then I've also struggled at times not being fully accepted into a Latinx community because people are like, I get, I hear like, Oh, you're whitewashed or, you know, your Spanish isn't 100% or whatever it might be, or I just don't get certain things because I wasn't raised in a Latinx household. So it kind of is a shared experience in that way. And we, we talk about that. And we bond about that. So I think it is really important that there is an exposure to culture, um, whatever culture that looks like, but just diversity in general is just so important. So As parents, regardless of the topic, our goal is always to be a model for our child, whether that's with manners or how you treat people or, you know, hygiene, whatever topic it is, you want to model for your kids what that looks like. And I think that it's so important for parents to just model what inclusivity and tolerance um, and allyship looks like in general. Um, and what it looks like to have an anti-racist life. And so for transracial children, if they've been pulled from a different country or even a different community within this country, I think it's so important that parents create spaces that are inclusive and that are diverse. Recently, a friend um, posted uh, a question online that asked, like, if you live in a rural area that is not diverse, do you think you should move on behalf of your transracial adoptee? And like, there was a, a bazillion answers and they all to sum up in one word were yes, because you just have more access to resources um, and access to communities that aren't, that don't look the same and that don't act the same. And that's, that's something that we, I mean, we would, I guess I would hope everybody would just strive for regardless if you have an, adapt, an adoptee or not. But I would also say that take your adoptees lead um don't just like inundate them with things cuz that can also feel really overwhelming and at different life phases they might want to connect to certain things and then they w- might want to pull back and that's very normal and that's natural so just to give an example like i wanted so badly to speak spanish but i couldn't and i grieved over the loss of my language for so long that i started skipping Spanish class, which seems so kind of productive, right? Like, if you want to speak it, why wouldn't you go? But my grief was – I could not articulate or understand or process. I wasn't at a place where I could process yet, like, how I had lost my language. And so, for me, I just dealt with it by literally skipping school. <laughs> and so um, – but that's, like, how it is. So when I was ready to accept language, now I speak Spanish. But it wasn't until I was ready to take that step that I could really – um, embrace that. So it's, 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 it's a balance between, you know, figuring out a way to incorporate that loss and that grief into your, your adoptee's life and to help them. But I also think that we can't just say like, Oh, if I have a black kid, I'm gonna have a black mentor, right? Like, that's not enough. Like, as a parent, you need to be modeling, like relationship with other races. I think it's
1: interesting, because you are bringing up so many great opportunities, right? Whether it's moving, whether it's surrounding yourself with people that don't look like you um, or whether it's just modeling those interactions. I know that some people might be wondering like, this seems like too much. You're asking too much of me. And I do want to echo what you said last episode that adopting isn't about creating the perfect child to like fit Mm -hmm. your family. It's about creating the safest sense Mm -hmm. of permanency for the child. And so if All of this and all of these steps seem too extreme. Then I think it might be a sign that you need to pause and reevaluate your motives behind adoption. And then if you're ready to jump into the deep end and really do what it would take to support your right, yeah, exactly.
0: I mean, this is this is such like a now more than ever, I would say, such an important thing. Like, so I think the children are amazing observers. They're smart. They're they're you know. So like, they're just like, they have little sponges, right? They're amazing observers, but they're not always the best interpreters. That doesn't mean that what they're feeling isn't valid. It's just that they don't necessarily have the context to always place what they're observing. So for example, like if you are a white family and you have a BIPOC child, your child and the only other BIPOC children in your community are other adoptees then they're observing that, right? That the only other BIPOC people I know are all adopted like me, but then they might come to the conclusion that people from my community don't know how to raise children, which is an an inaccurate statement, right? Mm -hmm. So like if I, as a child, only knew Latin Latino kids by being other adoptees, then it would be easy as a child. I could come to the conclusion well, maybe Latino communities don't know how to raise their children, which is absolutely not true. And so, um, being able to now more than ever have these conversations where race is such a hot topic and we're seeing kids, little kids, literally, you know, being murdered in the streets, you know, and just having that implicit bias. Like these are the conversations that, you need to have in your household and you need to have in your communities and you need to have with your family members and your friends and you have to be able to commit to that and if that's not something that you're able to commit and just stand up for and to practice these anti, um, anti-racism then that might not, being a transracial parent just ad- to an adoptee just might not be something right now that would be best to take on.
1: Okay. So this is going to be like another one of my (laughs) follow-up
0: questions. So I talked a little bit in the
1: intro about, um, this is us. And I, I've told you a little bit about how they have, like, this whole adoption, transracial adoptee Mm -hmm. storyline going on. And so something that came up in the episode, which, like, hopefully not too big of spoilers for anybody who actually watches the show. But um, the white brother and the black brother, right? So the black son is adopted. And the white brother has a lot of resentment towards his black brother because he feels like he got special Mm -hmm. treatment by the parents. Because the white parents didn't know how to confront race, so they just gave him extra stuff to try to make up for the Mm -hmm. feelings of otherness. And it created this sort of like Mm -hmm. hostility between the two because one always felt othered by the family and the other one always felt like less than because they Mm -hmm. weren't adopted or less than because the parents took all these extra steps. So what do you think are some good ways for um, transracial adoptive parents to help the balance between their children, between their bio children and their adopted children, especially when it is a transracial family and kind of navigating those, those yeah, murky that's waters. A good question.
0: I've never seen that show. I've so many people who are like, have you seen it? You know, um, I just, I don't like how adoption is portrayed in media, but I've heard nothing but good things. So I'm really curious. And now you have my wheel spinning on that and I have to, I have to watch this show. Um, no, but I think that <laughs> all in all, It just comes down to normalizing adoption in general from the beginning in such a, in a, in a context that doesn't seem like normalizing adoption from the beginning and using normalizing language and validating language is so important, right? Like you never want to sit your adoptee down on a couch one day and be like, Hey, guess what? You were adopted, Like you don't want a bomb to drop on somebody. It should just be from the beginning. This is our story. This is how our family was created. And just like if with you are if you're having like a biological sibling, like if you have an older sibling, when that new baby comes home from the hospital, incorporating it them into that routine helps them have a sense of like pride, right? So whether it's like, you know, go get the bottle for mommy or what or you know, help play with the baby, whatever it is, I think that if you can help give bio children a sense of, you know, like this is I'm proud to be the sibling because I get to contribute this, right? And normalizing it, not creating differences, right? Like, that is obviously, if that was something that the parents were struggling with, right? Where their shortcomings were not, from what you ex- explained, like they were not comfortable with talking about race. But then that's why it's so important, right? To constantly be doing the hard work and showing up every single day to figure out ways to have these hard conversations and to push yourself to grow because so you don't have dynamics where there's resentment or where there's um, boundaries that are blurred or unclear and if it's exhausting for you as a parent which I know it is and I'm not saying this is like a cakewalk right I know it's exhausting but just think of how much more exhausting it is for your transracial adoptee um,
1: that kind of leads me mm-hmm. to my next question, which is what are things that your adoptive parents got right, and what are some things you wish they had known yeah, that
0: they did um, hmm. I think that my parents did a lot right. I really – it's so my dad was always really good as a kid, Of, and I don't even think that he's aware that he did this, but he was really good at always letting me know that he'd be a safe person to talk to. Because he would always create moments of, he'd always bring things up or say things that didn't necessarily elicit, a re, like, the need for a response from me. But he would say things like, you know, I want you to know that if you ever want to find your birth family, like, I fully support you. I didn't have to necessarily respond to that. But it was always like, hey, I knew that if I ever did want that, like, I knew he'd be a safe person for me. And I don't think he did that, you know, with any intentionality. I think he was just speaking, like, from the heart. But it, it always – I've always respected him for that. As a kid, I would be like, no, I want nothing to do with that. That's, like, not anything I want to do. But I went into reunion reunion very young at, like, 15 years old. And so it was – I mean, that was cool. My mom um, – growing up in high school, we had a group of friends that every Sunday we would brunch with them together. Like we would rotate going to people's houses and just like having a big brunch and kind of like a Sunday fun day. And there was a girl, a family that would come sometimes and sometimes they wouldn't come. And one girl was at my age and one girl, her sister was two years older and her older sister was adopted from Korea. And the weekend I found my, the week I found my birth family that weekend, we all got together and they were there. And, at the table, I just kind of blurted out like, Oh my God, I found my birth family. And their mom, like immediately her gut response was, Oh my God, to my mom. She said, Oh my God, I can't believe you let her do that. And I just was, I remember just looking at her like, (sighs) Oh my God. (laughs) What did you just say? But I remember then immediately looking over at my friend, this who was a, was a Korean adoptee. I remember thinking to myself, Oh my God, I feel so terrible for you because like, that's there's no safety there at all, right? There's no, and I was, I'll never forget this moment Mm -hmm. like to the day I die because my mom then said, I am Amy's mom. And as a mom, whether we're comfortable with it or not, it's our job to support our children through whatever it is they need. And if this is something that she needs, then I am here every step of the way. And I will never forget that. Like in that moment, whether we were like surrounded by a lot of other people, she was not afraid to just defend me and defend what I needed and recognize that it was not about her. It was about what I needed. And that just was so empowering for me in that moment. So I think that my parents, without even realizing it, I think they created a lot of safety in that way. I think that the race piece, they've grown with me. Um, it definitely didn't come natural. I think that when they first you know, the era of when I was adopted, it was just like, if you have a baby, you have a baby, it's like a blank canvas. But that's like, we know now that that's not true. And I think that when I was younger, it was a very like colorblind kind of mentality. Like, oh, we don't see you any different. And now they realize, like, oh crap, like you are different. And that's, that's great. Like, that's like, we should be seeing you, you know, you're not a white girl. Um, and they're uh, walking alongside me on my racial um journey has been really powerful too. And it's brought up a lot of really amazing, amazing um, conversations and growing pains. I think that that's something that if they can do it all over again, I think they would want more racial education from the beginning.
1: And I think all of that really echoes the fact that it isn't always about like reading all the books and knowing exactly what to say as much as like walking alongside your adoptee and always putting their well-being ahead of your own comfort and just being a safe space and a safe person and knowing that and making them know that no matter what, your family is still going to be their family, right? Um, That nothing
0: that they do could push you away or could cause you to want to return them or
1: to not want them or
0: to reject them. Like you can have, like you said, any intervention in the book, but the number one thing that is going to heal trauma is felt safety through relationships. And so when you have caregivers who are committed to that sense of permanency, regardless of what you do or what you say, or, you know, and can understand that trauma isn't personal, that trauma is trauma and continue to just kind of get on your level and meet you where you're at that's when you're going to see like really strong and solid outcomes. And that's what I'm really thankful for. Like we have been through so much as a family, um, which is like 10, like a whole other podcast series. <laughs> but I think at the end of the day, I can truly say um, that my parents definitely didn't always get it right. Right. But their commitment to grow with me and not be so adamant about power struggles or you know their right or having control and understanding that like together, you know, Remember, I'm, I'm forever going to be grateful for that.
1: Yeah. And I, I want to echo this for the people in the back who may not have heard it cause you said it and it's going to stick with me. Trauma is trauma and it doesn't always reflect like your relationship with your adoptee. It just is trauma mm-hmm. and you don't always have to take it personally. And I know a lot of times adopting parents will take adoptees processing their trauma like personally as if it's a personal accusation or lack of gratitude or whatever they want to take it. But don't take it personally. You got to help them through even if it makes you uncomfortable because you're the adult and the parent in the situation. And if you don't think you're able to do that, then you Mm -hmm. may not be ready to adopt. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I think the next question I want to ask is, what is your take on the prevalence of closed adoptions in the U.S. over the last century and how some states still won't hand over records yeah, to I older mean, adoptees?
0: I really feel for adoptees who are in that situation. I think I don't, under, I don't see ever a situation why that could be justified. Um, uh, it just, I don't understand why some states are just so adamant about not providing adoptees with their information because a lot of times, you know, adoptees don't necessarily want to search um, for a reunion, but they just want basic facts, like understanding things for like genealogy or just being able to do simple things like learn more about medical history and things like that they might not have access to. I mean, when you have, when you have um, no information, anything can be an unknown. Like the unknown is way, way, way scarier than the truth, right? Because the unknown could be literally everything, anything, anything and everything, right? But once you have the truth, regardless of how hard it is, it's a tangible place to begin. And it's a tangible place to start. And if we have community around us, and if we have love and support, and if we have people that are non-judgmental and that don't impose bias, it's easy to, it's not easy, it's definitely not easy, but it's easier to begin to heal, right? Like anything else. And um, so I, I think that we can be scared of the truth, we can be scared of that, but it's, it's, it can't be scarier than the unknown. And so I really, my heart really does go out, out and feel. I think that, uh, I think open adoptions can be hard. I think that closed adoptions can be hard um, for their own reasons, for both. Um, I, I just think that for those adoptees, they're in spaces of close adoptions where they want information and just don't have access to it. My, I mean, my heart just goes out to them cause I just, I can't see the justification behind that.
1: Okay. So this kind of mm-hmm. leads me into the next question, which is like one trope that I remember seeing like in nineties mm-hmm. TV. And I think everybody does is, um, like the somewhat funny or like it was portrayed funny thing that a child found out they were adopted Mm. and like somebody let it slip and oh my goodness they didn't know they were adopted. Like what is your take
0: on that? Like should parents ever hide the fact that a child is adopted from (laughs) them? Um no like that's just I don't even see the point behind that or what the thought process is. Um it just I don't like it's like one of those things like make it make sense, you know? Like you see all those memes out there. I just I don't think it, it it to me it just it goes back to what I said earlier is that you should never have that moment where you like sit your adoptee down and a bomb drops. I think it's something that you just, it should always just be normalized and ingrained into your family story from the beginning. Um, because if if you, I mean, can you just, I mean, I can't even imagine um, having that and just realizing like in an instant, all of that loss that you didn't even I don't know, like it would just, I would, it would feel to me, I think it would just feel so betraying. And I would just, I would have, I would lose so much trust in that relationship. Um, And then it would open up so many more questions. You know, I just, I don't think it's fair. And I don't think it, I think it's just as a disservice to everybody. Something else that I've seen
1: that has raised a lot of questions in me is adopting families, um, whether it be it like international adoption mm-hmm. or a lot of times it's adoption from foster care, after they adopt their mm-hmm. child, they'll change their names mm-hmm. or they'll have the child choose a new name or they'll do whatever to create like a mm-hmm. new sense of family or whatever it is. So how do you
0: feel or what do you think about having adopting adopted yeah, I mean, I've children seen, change I've their seen names. everything possible with names? I think that I've seen it be a really empowering Um, I've seen, you know, kids who have been adopted from the foster care system at an older age and they truly want to have a fresh start and they want to kind of just, you know, kind of create a new identity with the next chapter in their life and they get to pick out their own name. I've seen that be like a really, really, really empowering thing. Um, I've seen... parents who adopt kids from other countries and then they try to find like an English version of that name so they kind of um colonize that child's name and so but keep it as a part of like whether it's the middle name or something like that like for example like if your birth name was Martha but then you come here and it's Martha right um or I've seen adoptees where their birth names become their middle names. That's a very common thing. Um, and so I've seen it all play. I think that what adopted parents need to be prepared for is that well, what I've also seen is that if a name is changed, I've also seen, and this is actually a lot more common than I think people realize is that when adoptees get older then, um, like high school or, you know, older, um, they will go back to their birth name, whether it's a part of their name or not and demand to be called by that name. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, And I think that that's something that's always been really interesting. um, Which is under like just the whole identity process and just, you know, playing around with what would it mean to be called by my birth name? Like this was my original name. Right. Um, And then I've also seen, it's interesting because I've also seen like with international adoption, I've seen some governments change names Or children who didn't have a birth name, but come over with a name. And so it's interesting. Names is such such an interesting topic because this in itself could be like a whole podcast episode. It could be like a a series, another series, because there's so many different ways that adoptees identify with name. For me, for example, I think my name, I was really animated about changing my name at um, marriage because my first name my adoptive parents gave me, um, and I'm named after someone in our family, and then my middle name is my birth name, and then my last name is my husband's name, so I feel like my name represents all three families of mine, and to me, that was, like, super special, but every adoptee perceives their name in such a personal way connected to their identity, Um, and so names are just, yeah, I just give parents the heads up that that is common, but I, I've seen it be empowering and I've seen it be, yeah. I think if you can get, incorporate birth name somehow into their forever name, I think that that, I think that that's really beautiful. I love that. I love that it's, it's not oh, dry. totally dry, that there's
1: all these nuances and, um, and it, it's good because I think it's hard. Part of me wonders if like giving somebody a new name is going to like erase who they are or if it's going to empower them and then. Knowing that there's all sorts of in between that you got to navigate and it goes child by child, which is pretty much everything in the adoption process, right? You got to go child Mm -hmm. by child and figure it out. So, another question we got, and uh, this one's a little stickier, it's a little broader, but. somebody wanted to know your take on the Hart family case. So um, for those who don't know, I'm going to give a little backstory. The Hart family murders was a murder suicide that took place in March, 2018, where Sarah and Jennifer Hart um, murdered their six adopted children by driving their SUV off a cliff. Some people may know like their son went super viral for giving a hug to like, I think a Uh, police officer. That growth journey has to be And then they started capitalizing on that about like their happy transracial family. And then all of a sudden they like drove their SUV with like all eight family members off a cliff. And it turns out there were all these allegations of child abuse. And it's just this whole whole spiraling thing. So it kind of leads into the bigger question, not just of that family case, but there have been so many cases that we've seen in the media like over time. And I bet even farther back that aren't reported about adopting Uh, sorry, adopted, adopting parents, um, murdering their adopted children or sending them back or whatever it is. So I'm going to give you like Uh, this time I want to know all your thoughts
0: on all of that. Now that you're saying that out loud, I'm like, remember pieces of that story and like how heartbreaking for so many reasons. Right. I mean, gosh, like there's so many things like I do remember that there were so many allegations of abuse that came out later, right? That these these kids were – like, there had been reports, right, that had actually gone to CPS, I believe. And I think think that that strikes Mm -hmm. me as problematic, obviously, for a lot of reasons, but – It's just that implicit bias, right? Like, hey, here's this loving white parents, but there's like that implicit bias that, oh, well, there's nothing wrong here, right? Maybe we don't have to dig deeper, but clearly there's like struggles in mental health and caseworkers. Like, I mean, they weren't, I don't think all the, I I could be totally wrong because I'm not 100% familiar with the case, but I don't think that they were a six sibling set, like biological sibling set. So why, if that family was getting burnt out or if that family was, struggling um why were caseworkers continuing to fill their home with more kids that's just doing everybody a disservice right because more stress is going to lead to things like abuse or Mm -hmm. you know driving your kids off a cliff apparently um and so yeah that's I don't know that's so disturbing and then you know so often you hear you know in the media or not just in the adoption world I mean it's, it's more common than you would think where people try to, quote, unquote, unquote like return their children um, because agencies in general, just workers in general, I just don't think do parents um, the service of really letting them understand what grief, loss, and trauma with all the nuances in the adoption foster care framework. And so when kids start presenting with um, trauma, related symptoms later in life, even if it's like, you know, two years old or 15 years old or whenever that may be, parents think, whoa, like, what the heck? Like, this is not, you know, what I was expecting. I didn't sign up for this. I shouldn't have to deal with this, you know? And then, um, unfortunately parents then, you know, try to trade in or return. Um, and this has caused problems in the international community. This has caused other countries to stop doing international adoptions with the United States because there've been parents who have tried to send their children um, back to home country. And so it's, it's, it's so heartbreaking. Like it's so heartbreaking. Adoption in its essence, like we already talked about should just be about creating places or, you know, senses of safety and permanency for children. And that lasts a lifetime.
1: And I think something I want to add is that we have talked about in the past, um, in, the other, in the other episodes, about the importance of pre-adoption therapy. And one of the reasons why that's so important is to kind of explore all these what-ifs. Mm-hmm. What if you get a child who exhibits these behaviors later on? Or what if you are encountered with this? And then you can start really looking at, are you equipped and are you ready to take on adoption and adopt again what that all may mean, even though it's not always going to be cut and dry and perfect. And it may be a really difficult journey. Like, are you ready to confront that journey head on and do everything you need to do to make sure that yeah, you are no, safe? absolutely.
0: That's such a good point. Yeah. Pre-adoption um, therapy or consultation is just so important because we can talk about grief and loss and all of us have a sense of what that is because most of us um, by the time we're adults have lost a friend or a family member unfortunately so we have like an idea of what that feels like but to understand that with all the nuances within the adoption framework is so important because that can give you more specific insight of what you might experience um and and a lot of parents just don't have that exposure from workers and I think that workers need to do a better job I think that um you know systemically things have to change.
1: Definitely. And I want to ask a question that some people <laughs> may be scared to ever ask. So I'll ask it for them. What do you do if you just feel like you're at the end of your rope? Like with your adoptee, you don't know what to do. You don't know who to turn to. You feel like this is not what you signed up for and you don't know like what next, next steps yeah, to so take. What I think do you suggest they do?
0: First and foremost is seek support. Um, you know, We can't go through life and we can't go through hard moments alone. We need support and we need people to help us sometimes get back on track. Um, Sometimes I'd never want an adoptive parent to ever feel like they are alone on this journey. So whether it's finding a therapist or a support group or um, some type of community support. I think that that's really important to help normalize like what you're going through. Sometimes all we need when we're at like the end of our rope is just to know that we're not crazy, that like what we're going through is normal and that we're not the only person experiencing these feelings. I think all of us can relate to that just with COVID, right? Like, Oh my God, why am I so sad? I, you know, but everyone, you talk to mm-hmm. your friends and you're, everyone's like, I'm so, I have the worst cabin fever. Like, I can't get out of the house. I can't do anything. And you realize like, okay, I'm calmer now because I know that this is a shared experience with other people. Right. So I think first and foremost is always finding that sense of community and that sense of support. And then, you know, just like taking breaks is okay. Right. Not like necessarily like, you know, but I mean, finding that respite, like, do you need just like a weekend away? Is there somebody who can come like, whether you have a partner at home or somebody like just to give yourself a breather. Like we all need that, whether we have adopted children or biological children, right? We all need a break because it really does take a village. So I would say find your community, find your support, find um, ways that you can kind of just breathe and get some space and get some clarity and then um, try to come back and just, and just remember at the heart what we've already said is that trauma is not personal you can try to remember that. I think it's really important that this is um, a journey that your adoptee is going on, and difficult behaviors are a sign of what they're going through and what they're experiencing and what they're trying to process.
1: And in terms of it not being personal, something that I want to bring up that I've heard as people have found out that we were planning on adopting like throughout the course of our marriage. We've heard Mm. comments like, make sure you don't adopt somebody with disabilities or what if you adopt them and they have like medical something that comes up, right? Like all these different questions. And it always, for me, begged the question, like, well, what if my biological children turned out to have like some sort of disability or some sort of medical Mm -hmm. condition? Would I like send them back? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's like, for me, it's such a backwards question of limiting yourself or, having all these what ifs. Now, if you know for a fact that you're not going to be able to handle certain things above a whatever parameter, maybe you should not be looking into adopting until you're ready for those and all the unknowns that come with it. But if you are willing to have a child in any sense, I think everybody signs up to go and to confront and to take on anything that comes along with yeah, having that child, that whether when... it be a biological so, or
0: adopted. Yeah. Um... In the foster care system for example there are medical foster homes so there are foster parents who specifically sign up for children who come with different medical challenges and medical needs Um, and so there are people who you know that is not something that that's something that like won't necessarily like scare them away you know for lack of a better word um for giving um safe permanency for these children but that is something that like if you know for a fact like um, this would be too triggering for me because of X, Y, and Z, you know, you could always share that with your caseworker. And then, you know, we can't always predict, nobody has a crystal ball. We don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I think that that's something that you would just want to communicate because that just, uh, there's a balance of not wanting to create like an ideal child, but there's also like, um, a balance of you don't want placement to dissolve and to fizzle, right? Like you don't, we don't want you to be overwhelmed from the beginning to the point where like you, you like enter the situation, like you can't handle it. Right. And so hopefully a, care, a placement worker tries to find like the best match for families. Okay. So that rounds out the questions that we got. Thank you again to everybody
1: who submitted a question. I really enjoyed kind of going down all these little rabbit holes with you and exploring some of the things that we didn't get to fully flush out in past episodes. I want to ask you, we've already talked about your, um, Way counseling Instagram, but tell us about your other Instagram, yeah, so um, re- the Reclaim Beauty this
0: Project. I project last year after, um, George Floyd was murdered. I was feeling just the heaviness, like everybody else. And with COVID, I just, I could not I had to do something with all my extra energy of just, like, I I was just going crazy, I was mourning, I was grieving, um, and all of that. And so I wanted to create a space for BIPOC communities to come together and to lift each other up and to be, um, to celebrate BIPOC communities through beauty, voice, and culture, and really challenge Eurocentric standards of beauty. Because beauty is so much more than, you know, what we see in our appearance. It's our culture, it's our Um, way of being. And I wanted to be able to amplify that and to celebrate that when so much of the world was trying, you know, was, um, taking so much value from us. Um, and so I, I, so I, I, try to highlight, um, members of the BIPOC community and have them in their own words state what reclaiming beauty means to them. Um, and I try to highlight BIPOC business, um, to just kind of challenge different stereotypes and to just amplify businesses that might not otherwise be in the spotlight.
1: I love it. It's been such a wonderful thing that I've seen on my feed. I love whenever it pops up. And I think that there's not one single listener who wouldn't gain something from following that account. So there's two different places that you need to go follow Amy. The first one is Reclaiming the Beauty Project. And then the second one is Grow, heal, blossom. I can never get my words straight. I will link both of those in the show notes for anybody who's interested and go follow her. And, And then I wanted to ask okay. <laughs> these last, this time it's going to be a two-part question. So the first one is if there was anything that you would want adopting parents to take away from this. series, want to what would it be? that The goal is
0: never to shame or to um, discourage. I think that my, my goal is to invite you in and to have you walk alongside this learning journey um, to grow and to adapt and to just evolve like we all do Um, throughout life. And so I just want to encourage you and uplift you and know that um, if you're here, you're showing up for the hard stuff. Um, That's amazing. And that's great because it just shows that you're committed to this process and um, yeah, just keep on going and don't ever feel like you can't reach out for
1: support. And then the second question I wanted to ask is for anybody who is not on an adoption journey at all, like not planning on adopting, not an adoptee, um, what would
0: you want them to take? Yeah, away I just from think that this whole it's series? important to, I mean, my goal, I guess, is hope is just to get deeper insight to people in your community to have more compassion and empathy in general, just for different experiences. And hopefully you learned something um, that you just didn't know before. I love it all. And that's my hope mm-hmm. for everyone, too, as
1: well as myself. So I've been asking you about favorite songs, but today is you and my, yeah. our queen, Selena. It's her birthday. So
0: what mm, is your favorite so hard. song? I think, I know it's like everyone's favorite. So I like, and the risk of sounding really cliche, I just don't care. I think it's Como La Flor. I just really think that that's my favorite. It's so good. Yeah. It's I don't so know. good. I'm sure when we get off from talking, I'll think of another one, but I just, that's the very first one that pops in my head. I love that song. I love it too. Okay. I love you. I am so grateful
1: you were here with us for this three-part series. I know that you're (laughs) probably going to be back. I'm probably going to be having you back for different series as we go along in the future. Um, But for now, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And that wraps up our three-part series on adoption i hope you guys have loved every minute of it as i have and thank you so much for everybody who has been part of all three parts of this with us and as i was editing i wanted to acknowledge a couple things i noticed one no, Amy and I do not just talk over each other all the time. There were some issues with our sound recording and it kind of muddled our voice tracks over each other. So I promise you, we're not just talking over each other all the time. It's just some technological difficulties. And thank you so much for powering through it with us. The second thing I wanted to acknowledge is, yes, I know it's Selena, not Selena's. It's just the way my abuela always said it. So it stuck with me and I can't get it out of my head. If you haven't heard of her and you don't know who she is, we're not talking about Selena Gomez. We're talking about the Texan and Latina Queen, Selena Quintanilla Perez. And if you have not heard her music, please go check her out right now. I think it'll make your day. And third, I want to acknowledge that some of the stuff we've said may feel a little harsh. It may feel like we are telling people that they should not be adopting at all, like they're not worthy of adopting, maybe shaming adopting parents, and I want you guys to know that that's not our intent at all. Our intent is to advocate for adoptees every step of the adoption process. We want to make sure that adopting parents know what they're getting themselves into and that they can truly commit to the hard work that it takes to adopt a child, to adopt someone who has gone through trauma and grief and loss, and to be alongside their adoptee in every way in the most supportive way, to both help enrich the life of that adoptee and your adopting family, but also to help create the safest sense of permanency and create the best outcome for your family. So we're not trying to be gatekeepers. We're not trying to say only certain people should be allowed to adopt. Instead, we're trying to make sure that for some of our adoptees that may not have the language or the voice or the age to advocate for themselves yet that we're doing the advocacy for them. So I hope you guys can take everything that we've said with the love and compassion we have in our hearts and you can use this to advocate for the adoptees in your life and to work for global family preservation. And of course, I have to make the plug. If you haven't already, please follow us on Instagram at flourishing in color. Please follow us on Spotify or subscribe and rate us on Apple podcasts or whatever podcast platform you're using. Do what you can to help support our little community and help us grow. Today's ending poem is extremely special because it's by Amy Wilkerson herself and it isn't just by Amy, she's actually going to be reading and performing it. Many may not know that Amy is a spoken word poet and so this poem is something she wrote back when she was a child processing her adoption and I'm so excited for us to be able to hear her poetry in her own voice.
0: canvas of me by Amy Wilkerson you are an artist so you thought you understood blank and white you started stroking the paintbrush of motherhood on the canvas of my heart teaching the values that expressed what it meant to be a lady quiet and passive you dabbled pinks and yellows across my rosy cheeks lacy socks and seersucker jumpers oh my ash. gosh gosh bagash, gosh what a perfect little baby With every brushstroke, you started to fill this canvas with a moral masterpiece about a lady's evolution. Dainty, sweetly petite, not to become some social pollution. Speak softly and kindly and never question your authority. So my lips stayed shut and even smiled when I was questioned for being a racial minority. Their figure-drawn legs outlined a wasteless stream of beauty. When all my curves of full-figured seduction flowed right to my south-of-the-border booty. When my washable markers came out of my clothes but nothing washed out the color of my skin. I realized the reality of my world as I was stuck inside their oblivious white heaven. Her paintbrush started filling up my canvas with the sounds of a colorblind, it's all right, I don't see you any differently, kind of empty reassurance, as if to save me from my medium brown existence as a burden. And as I sketched out different ways that I could appear, nothing I did matched the brown abstract reflection that haunted me in the mirror.